The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, everyone. Uh, before we get into the word, I have a couple of additional announcements I wanted to make. Um, last week, Pastor Peter sent out a survey for our retreat evaluation. And so if you went to the retreat, you should have gotten one of those emails asking you to fill that out. would really strongly urge you to do that. You know, I know sometimes you get these evaluations and you wonder why bother. Uh, does anything matter the way I uh, fill it out, whether I do or not? And I just want to say it is actually important to fill out that evaluation because we make some important decisions about next year's retreat based on the response that we get. So just, again, trying to encourage everyone to chime in if you haven't. Uh, given your response to that retreat eval, okay? Also, we announced in the mid-year meeting about the launching of this discipleship program. And so sign-ups have begun today. Um, it's basically inviting church members to get into what we're calling triads, groups of three. And you're welcome to find your own group of three if you have some friends in the church that you wanted to do this together with. Uh, if you want to be part of this program but you don't know who to do it with, you can just sign up yourself and we'll... Uh, connect you with two other people in the church that you could do this. And it's really about journeying together in this uh, spirit of vulnerability and openness as we explore what it really means to have a, uh, a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're going to get into all kinds of interesting topics like how the disciplines play into that and what it means for us to hear the voice of God and what it means to have intimacy with God and, and just looking at some of these kind of aspects of the relationship with God. And so sign-ups are going to go on for a few weeks and then probably either around toward the end of September or early October is when we'll actually launch the triads. And as we said also, in every group of three, we're asking someone to be designated as the uh, facilitator. And I, I think what would probably make the most sense is if, you know, um, it's the person that's, you know, maybe a little bit, um, I don't know how to put it, like just maybe a bit more spiritually mature. So if three of you could stare at each other and figure out who that is. If you're kind of, it's, that's hard to tell. If you, if you can't really figure that out, you could leave it blank and we'll sort of help you through that process. But what it's going to amount to is that that facilitator is going to come to like a meeting every six to eight weeks that I'm going to be teaching that's going to walk that whole triad through the next module, sort of, you know, whatever we're going to teach. So there you're going to sort of come to that seminar and then you'll sort of represent what I taught to your group when you guys meet individually like that, okay? So that's sort of the picture of what that's going to look like. And so when you sign up, you can... Um, Use our text member service that we do for uh, most of our signups. You just text ICC Triad to 95577. Uh, there will be a physical sign-up sheet there at our welcoming table as well, okay, if you prefer to do it that way. But even if you have a triad, we ask everyone in that triad to sign up individually rather than one person signing up for everybody else, okay? So um, just please make sure you do that. And it'll be awkward if two of you put yourselves down and the others and then... One person doesn't put the other people down, but we'll see how it goes. So just make sure that if you're in a triad, you, you get your ducks in a row and make sure everyone signs up together and puts each other's names down so there's no confusion about which group you want to be in, okay? The other thing I want to announce is that on September 6th, 17th, this uh, couple Saturdays from now, uh, there's going to be a 
a special service that's hosted by New Life Church, uh, which is uh, Lauren Cunningham is the founder of Youth with a Mission, YWAM. And uh, he is coming to Chicago, and he's coming to New Life Church, and they're hosting. He's been recently receiving the strong conviction about God's people just getting deeper into the Word of God and this concern about the Bible illiteracy that's in our generation. So he's going to do what he's calling a Bible tour. And so that's going to be on this Saturday. And there are other events there as well, workshops, an art performance that you could see there as well. And we'll send this out by email so that you can have all these details. Details, And so we would encourage you to come and attend that event if you're open to it. I think it'll be a, it'll be a really great time, not only of, of hearing Lauren Cunningham speak, but also of worship and, and a time of prayer as well. Um, just to let you know, if some of you are not familiar with YWAM, uh, I wouldn't describe ICC as a, quote, charismatic church, although we definitely have different charismatic expressions even within our congregations. And, and when it comes to sort of charismatic or non-charismatic, I know our church sort of has a broad spectrum. Some of you actually have quite a bit of history in the charismatic movement, and some of you have never really delved into that. And, and some of you are not even sure what I mean by the charismatic movement. And so uh, YWAM is definitely a little bit more on the charismatic side, and so I want to give you a heads up so that you don't go to that event and say, what in the world is this, or something like that. But I don't want that to dissuade you from attending and you might actually find that to be a very interesting and enlightening expression of the Spirit uh, being there at that event. So um, just consider that and would invite you to uh, attend that meeting if you're free on that weekend, okay? All right. Um, today I'm resuming our study in the Gospel of Luke. In October, we're going to take another brief break for a few weeks where we're going to explore the Bible's teaching on reaching out and serving others, uh, both within the church and outside of the church. But for the next several weeks, probably through September, uh, I'm going to examine a passage in the Gospel of Luke that is arguably the most debated passage in all of the Gospels. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. In this passage, found in Luke 21, Jesus basically gives an extensive prophecy on future troubles that lie ahead for the world. And uh, if you remember going all the way back to April, um, we got to this place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has finally arrived in Jerusalem. And he knows that it's his final trip to Jerusalem because he knows he's come there to die. And so this is recording the last week of the life of Christ in his earthly ministry. And one of his first acts when he arrives in Jerusalem is to cleanse the temple of all of the merchants and the money changers who are using temple worship to basically get rich. And so after he cleans the temple, he stays there for a few days and he begins to teach. And a lot of his teaching centers around this theme of his authority, the true authority that he holds as the Son of God over and against these religious leaders who are leading God's people astray. Um, in the last message that I preached in Luke way back in May, uh, the passage we looked at was the widow's offering of Jesus pointing out how all these rich people were making such a big show of the gifts that they were bringing to the temple, and yet Jesus highlights this poor widow who puts in her last pennies because, as he points out, 
these rich people gave out of their excess, whatever they could spare, and yet this poor widow gave sacrificially. In her desperate situation, she gave so generously to the temple. Um, it is in this context that we pick up the story with the Olivet Discourse. Um, now, let me say this. In the coming weeks, I am intending to sort of unpack this difficult passage pretty much almost verse by verse as we really look at these signs that Jesus tells us to be alert to, okay? Um, but because this issue of biblical prophecy is so hotly debated in the church and can cause so much confusion, what I felt the need to do is before we start looking at the individual things like what are the persecutions or the signs in the heavens or, or the wars that are coming, and before we look at that stuff, what I want to do is I want to take a step back and look at the big picture of the Olivet Discourse as well as the big picture of biblical prophecy in general. And so I want to say that today's sermon may feel at times a little bit more like a history lesson than an expository sermon, and I, I'm going to apologize for that, but I think it's important ground to cover that's going to set the stage for all the individual applications of this Olivet Discourse that we're going to look at in the weeks ahead, okay? Um, so with that in mind, let's take a look at Luke chapter 21, verse 5 to 36. And it says, And while some, of, <coughs> while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all they, this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall on by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Let's pray. Lord, these words are frightening. It's frightening to anticipate what may lie ahead, maybe even in our history, in our lifetime. And yet we pray that within these words that you proclaim, that we would hear the message of hope that you give to your saints and the call to faith that you Send out to your church to be ready for this day and to be prepared for your coming. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know how many of you saw this 2012 movie called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. It's kind of an indie movie and didn't get really wide distribution, but uh, I actually found it to be a really interesting movie. Uh, in it, scientists have... and. I'm sorry, you're not going to see a movie clip, okay, if you're waiting for a video clip. There's no video clip today. I'm just talking about the movie, all right? Um, scientists have discovered a huge asteroid that is headed directly to planet Earth. And they project that it's going to strike in three weeks, completely wiping out all life on the planet. Steve Carell plays this insurance salesman named Dodge who meets this girl named Penny, played by Kira Knightley, who, who is a girl that lives a couple buildings down from him. And together, as they await the end of the world as they know it, um, go on a quest. Uh, Dodge goes to find his high school sweetheart that he felt he should have married in the first place. And Penny wants to reconnect with her family that she's been separated from. And so the whole movie is about this quest that they go on together as, as newly found friends. But what I found most interesting about this movie was the exploration of how people would respond if they knew that the world was going to come to an end in three weeks. Uh, predictably, people riot. People loot. Some commit suicide. Some become baptized. Some leave their families for lovers. Some throw drug and sex parties. But three weeks is 
it's a long time in one perspective, right? In a sense that society still has to function. Uh, People still need basic utilities. People still need to eat. And so interestingly, some people keep showing up for work, intent on doing their duty until the very end. And so news networks continue to broadcast down to the last day the breaking news of what's happening around the world. Interestingly, some restaurants are still open. It's hard to find them, but there are. Um where they're still serving food. <laughs> and there's this, to me, one of the most poignant scenes where they go to what appears like a TGIF, you know, TGI Fridays, and there's this skeleton crew of waitresses that are still coming and serving these desperate people. And it's just, it's just one of the, the strangest, most bizarre moments in the movie. Uh, but I, I want to ask you, how would you react if you knew an asteroid was going to hit the Earth? <laughs> And wipe out everyone in three weeks. How would you spend those final 21 days of your life? And, and I think another interesting question is, would the choices that you make in that situation be any different than how you're already living your life right now? And if so, what does that reveal about what drives your life today? You know, if, if you would live so radically different knowing that you have three weeks to live, then what does that actually say about your values right now in this present life? What prompted Jesus' teaching about the future was the way that people around him were marveling at the breathtaking awe and beauty of the temple in Jerusalem. All the historical records indicate that the temple in Jerusalem was, in fact, truly awe-inspiring. It was an architectural marvel. The temple was built on a mountain there in the center of the city. And there were so many gold plates that Herod put on his temple that what eyewitnesses who were alive at that time say is that when the sun would strike it at just the right angle, It was blinding. The temple literally looked like the rising sun over a hill because there was so much gold everywhere. The parts that were not covered with gold were made of such pristine, pure white marble that from a distance as you're approaching Jerusalem, people said that Mount Moriah, where the temple was built, looked like a snow-capped mountain. That's what it looked like to people. Okay? So you can imagine being an ancient person living in a stone or mud hut in those days and coming to visit this place. And you can imagine the awe that would have struck you when you stepped foot on this temple. Okay? It was awe-inspiring, the experience of coming to the temple of the Lord. There is this ancient document that comes from these days known as the Letter of Aristeus. It's the testimony of a Gentile foreigner who happened to visit Jerusalem when the temple was still operating. And he writes about his experience encountering the glory and the majesty of this temple. And forgive me, this quote is a little long, but I want to read a big part of what he said about the temple to give you a full picture 
of what that, just the visceral reaction of coming to the Temple Mount and what it was like. Aristeus writes, When we arrived in the land of the Jews, we saw the city situated in the middle of the whole of Judea on the top of a mountain of considerable altitude. On the summit, the temple had been built in all its splendor. All the buildings were characterized by a magnificence and costliness quite unprecedented. It was obvious that no expense had been spared on the door and the fastenings which connected it and with the doorposts and the stability of the lintel. The ministration of the priests is in every way unsurpassed, both for its physical endurance and for its orderly and silent service. For they all work spontaneously, though it entails much painful exertion, and each one has a special task allotted to him. The service is carried on without interruption. Some provide the wood, others the oil, others the fine wheat flour, others the spices. Others, again, bring the pieces of flesh for the burnt offering, exhibiting a wonderful degree of strength. For they take up with both hands the limbs of a calf, each of them weighing more than two talents, and throw them with each hand in a wonderful way onto the high place of the altar, and, they, and never miss placing them on the proper spot. The most complete silence reigns so that one might imagine that there was not a single person present, though there are actually 700 men engaged in the work, besides the vast number of those who are occupied in bringing up the sacrifices. Everything is carried out with reverence and in a way worthy of the great God. We were greatly astonished when we saw Eliezer, that's the high priest at that time, Engaged in the ministration, all the mode of his dress and the majesty of his appearance, which was revealed in the robe which he wore and the precious stones upon his person. There were golden bells upon the garment, which reached down to his feet, giving forth a peculiar kind of melody. And on both sides of them, there were pomegranates with variegated flowers of a wonderful hue. He was girded with a girdle of conspicuous beauty woven in the most beautiful colors. On his breast he wore the oracle of God, as it is called, on which twelve stones of different kinds were inset, fastened together with gold, containing the names of the leaders of the tribes, according to their original order, each one flashing forth in an indescribable way its own particular color. Their appearance created such an awe and confusion of mind as to make one feel that he had come into the presence of a man who belonged to a different world. I am convinced that anyone who takes part in the spectacle which I have described will be filled with astonishment and indescribable wonder and be profoundly affected in his mind at the thought of the sanctity which is attached to each detail of the service. (laughs) Quite a description, huh? From an outsider stepping foot in Jerusalem and describing what he saw when he saw Israelites worship their God at the temple. What an awesome sight that must have been to see 700 priests. I always imagine this to be real, like, you know, dainty work. But this is resembling more of a meatpacking factory, I think, you know? I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of animals. These guys, these priests must have been buff, you know? And just silently, just one carcass after another thrown into this enormous altar with this great fire burning as an offering to God and everything done in total silence. 
in reverence for God. And so as Aristeus describes it, the experience was so overwhelming that he was left in a state of dazed confusion and wonder, as he says, as if I had stepped onto another planet. I didn't even know what I was observing. It was so crazy, so fantastic. This was the experience of coming to the Temple Mount and experiencing worship in that place. And so it's not surprising that these people point to Jesus and say, look at this place, look at this amazing place. And yet, for all of its impressive grandeur, Jesus told them something they couldn't believe. And he said, you know what? One day, not a single stone in this house will be left standing. The entire structure will be raised to the ground. The disciples were obviously curious about when such a horrible disaster was going to occur. And so they asked him, when is that going to be? It's in response to that question that Jesus launches into the Olivet Discourse and tells them about all the signs and wonders that are going to take place when this temple is going to be destroyed. And toward the end of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says in verse 32, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And here is what happened in history that the Bible doesn't record. A little more than 30 years after Jesus uttered this prophecy, the Jews would mount an armed rebellion against Rome. It happened around 66 AD. And in response, Emperor Nero sends an army to restore order. And after four years of waging war against the Jews, they finally breached the walls of Jerusalem. And as they stormed the city, Titus the general, who would later become emperor, said to his armies, don't touch the temple. Don't lay a hand on it. Leave it intact. But what happens next is recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus, who was not a believer. He was not a Christian. But he writes, interestingly, this eyewitness account of what happened. The rebels shortly after attacked the Romans again, and a clash followed between the guards of the sanctuary and the troops who were putting out the fire inside the inner court. The latter routed the Jews and followed in hot pursuit right up to the temple itself. Then one of the soldiers, without awaiting any orders and without, with no dread of so momentous a deed, but urged on by some supernatural force, snatched a blazing piece of wood and climbing on another soldier's back, hurled the flaming brand through a low golden window that gave access on the north side to the rooms that surrounded the sanctuary. As the flames shot up, the Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched the tragedy. They flocked to the rescue with no thought of sparing their lives or husbanding their strength for the sacred structure that they had constantly guarded with such devotion was vanishing before their eyes. So despite the order of Titus, 
One lone soldier acting against orders throws one flaming piece of wood into the temple and the entire thing burns down. But the structure is made of stone, right? So the bricks are still standing. But this is what happens. In order to harvest all of the melted gold off of these stones, the rest of the Roman soldiers tear down the temple brick by brick until not a single stone was left standing in their greed to get all of the gold that they could off of the temple stones, thus fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that not a single stone would be left standing on the temple in their generation. It's interesting if you also look at the historical records that around 60 AD, a whole series of strange events begin to happen in that region. A couple of massive earthquakes strike the Near East and the Mediterranean area. Era, area. Several devastating famines happen in the Roman Empire, even affecting the prosperity of Rome itself. Weird signs begin to appear in the heavens recorded in the histories of that time. Josephus, the historian I just quoted, writes about a comet that raced across the sky right around the time that Jerusalem fell. Regarding the persecution that Jesus said would take place, being brought before kings and governors to testify in Jesus' name, we don't even have to go to outside sources to verify that history. That's recorded right in the book of Acts itself, isn't it? And so at one level, it looks pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Jesus predicted all of these things were going to happen, and they did 2,000 years ago, 70 AD. But as people study the Olivet Discourse, in the context of other prophecies found in the Old and New Testaments about the end times, it becomes clear to most of them that the events that Jesus was describing aren't limited to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They seem to foreshadow something far greater, far more global in its reach, telling us of events that have yet to even occur. And there has been a growing consensus among Bible scholars that many biblical prophecies don't point to a single event in history, but they describe a pro progressive fulfillment throughout the cycles of history. In other words, at one level we can say that Jesus' prophecy in Luke 21 fulfilled the fall of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple in A.D. 70, but it also is talking about cycles in history that are going to continue to repeat this pattern into even the future that awaits us. And one of the other things that people note is that as these cycles of biblical prophecy fulfillment happen, there is an increase in the intensity and the scale and the scope of the fulfillment. 
In other words, that fall of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple is just a foreshadowing of what is yet to come in history. Philip Ryken writes, The kinds of disasters that Jesus prophesied have happened many times over in the history of the world. And they will happen again. Every time they happen, they are signs of the coming judgment that remind us to get ready for the end of the world. To get ready. Be prepared for this end. One of the main reasons why Jesus taught his disciples about these future events is found in verse 9, where it says, And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Jesus is essentially telling his disciples, really difficult days are ahead dark days. Things are going to get pretty bad before I return. But he says, take heart and don't be afraid. It's kind of interesting to me as I think about what's happened in history, even in my lifetime. Um, I kind of grew up as a child of the Cold War era, the Soviet Union and communism fighting against freedom and democracy in the West. And then suddenly, very unexpectedly in the early 90s, right, communism fell. The Soviet Union was dissolved. And the Cold War was almost like in an instant over. And it felt like the whole world breathed a collective sigh of relief. And at least for a few years, the world seemed like it was heading in actually a pretty good direction. There was peace everywhere, no major wars, no major conflict anywhere. And then in 2001, two commercial airline planes crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City, plunging us into what we call this war on terror that seems to only grow more intense with the passing years. 2004, over 230,000 people were killed by a tsunami caused by an earthquake off the coast of Indonesia. 230,000, that, that to me... It's just a chilling picture because this shows the tidal wave hitting these unsuspecting people who don't even know what is about to happen in that instant. The very next year, the U.S. was hit by Hurricane Katrina, one of the deadliest hurricanes in U.S. history, killing over 1,800 people. In 2015, almost 16,000 Japanese died when another earthquake and tsunami hit the island nation of Japan. And I could go on and on, you know. Um, are these signs? Is this the fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse that Jesus predicted 2,000 years ago? I'll be honest. I don't know. I don't know. They could be. And as I'll talk about in the weeks to come on this passage, I, I think we need to be very cautious about trying to connect current events with any particular biblical prophecy. In 2007, my family and I were serving as missionaries in Kenya. And the country at that time in December 
descended into a chaos of violence after what was perceived to be by most Kenyans to be a rigged presidential election. People were dragged out of cars in the street. They were cut down with machetes and killed for simply being from the wrong tribe. It felt like Rwanda, like Burundi. And living through that experience, I saw firsthand how fragile this thing that we call civilization really is. The first thing that ran out where we were living was fuel. The tankers just couldn't get the gas to the gas stations because the highways were filled with rioters and looters and killers. After fuel ran out in the country, the power grid went down. Once the generators at the cell towers ran out of gas, the cell towers went down. We no longer had a way to communicate with anyone anymore. I drove into town, which in and of itself was a pretty risky venture, in order to buy some supplies. And I went to the grocery store where I usually did our shopping, and I'd never seen a site like that in my life. Every single shelf in the store was empty as people hoarded and stockpiled supplies, anticipating that there wasn't going to be any food getting anywhere in the country for a while, and they were right. I basically watched the country that I was living in plunged into the Stone Age. And all of it happened in a couple of weeks. Grocery store shelves completely emptied. No gas, no electricity, no cell phone, nothing. And that rattled me. That really shook me, that experience. Um, I think most of us living in America have this illusion that that could never happen in our country. You know, Nothing like that could happen in the U.S. But would it really take that much to find Americans wrestling with each other in the aisles of a Walmart over the last case of bottled water if you couldn't drink the water that came out of your tap? I, I think... Just that alone, polluting the country's water supply, could plunge us into a chaos. Just think about what happens on Black Fridays over shopping deals, okay? And magnify that exponentially. And you begin to get a sense of how fragile this thing that we call civilization really is. I think the truth is that probably most of the Jews that heard what Jesus said that day must have laughed in disbelief. Are you looking at this building, Jesus? Do you see this magnificent structure? Are you serious when you say that in our generation, this awesome temple is going to be torn down right in front of our eyes? Nothing could destroy this place. But every single word that Jesus said came true in the next 35 years. And I, I think, I'm, I'm going to wrap up here, and we're going to go into communion, but I think 
This is what is being asked of us as we wrestle with this Olivet Discourse. It's simply this. Where do you find your security in life? Where do you find your security? Because I want to tell you this. Living in America, it is so easy to place our security in the strength of this nation. Whatever happens in Rwanda or Kenya or Southeast Asia or the Middle East, like Yemen and Syria, that can't happen in America. We're too strong for that. But I think what Jesus is saying is things are going to happen in our world that are going to rock the very foundations of your sense of security and where you put your hope. And that is what I think Jesus is readying his disciples for. Where do you put your hope? Jesus warns, dark days are coming before I return. But he comforts his disciples and he says, don't be terrified when they actually start happening. And as we're going to see even in the sermon that I'm going to preach next week, it's because even in that terror, Jesus has a special mission for his church. And if we as the people of God have our hopes wrapped up in the same thing that the world has its hopes wrapped up in, and if we are just as terrified as the world, then we will not rise to the calling of Jesus Christ to be what he calls us to be in an age of darkness and destruction. I know this is pretty grim stuff. I recognize that. And, 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 you know, I wish I could just preach fluff every week and say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. Now go home and be blessed. And that's in the Gospels. But this stuff is also in there. And it'd be irresponsible for me as your shepherd if I don't prepare ICC as a congregation for what could happen in our country. John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, it says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That is the hope of the believer, that whatever happens in this life, whatever is taken away from me in this life, nothing can touch the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. When you put your hope in Christ and Christ alone, there is nothing that we have to fear, no matter what happens in the United States. We're going to come to this table in just a minute now and take part in this communion as a church family. In Luke chapter 22, verse 14 to 16, as Jesus inaugurated this Last Supper, this, this communion, it says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment 
in the kingdom of God. One of the things that we're doing whenever we come to this table and take this bread and take this cup is that we're reminding ourselves that Jesus is coming. The day is coming when Christ will return. And every time we take part in this ordinance, it's a reminder to us, this world is not my home. Jesus has left, but one day he's coming back for me. Let's pray. Let's ready our hearts for this communion that we're going to take. And uh, we're going to have a song that we're going to sing right now to um, just reflect on what we've been hearing through this Olivet Discourse. And so uh, let's, let's prepare ourselves for the Lord's table.